call it esprit de corps, mateship. You know, it's the same as when I played rugby. It's and particularly in the context of veterans and CrossFit or whatever else where there's that physical buy-in to that purpose, it comes down to your performance and your actions there and then, especially in a world where people are constantly able to be inauthentic and let their words do the talking, but not be able to follow through and be accountable in actions. That's where particularly us within the veteran community and those who have lived the pinnacle of appreciating true authenticity and true accountability, it comes from a physical buy-in where you can't hide behind a computer or a keyboard. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. This podcast has been sponsored by Salesforce, the world's number one CRM, enabling companies of every size and industry to digitally transform and connect with their customers in a whole new way through a single view of customer data and real-time insights that create personalized experiences and drive cost savings. Salesforce is proud to be a gold member of the Employee Recognition Scheme of the Armed Forces Covenant and is dedicated to its support to the military community. Internally, they run an initiative called VetForce, which is an internal employee alliance, and it actively champions an inclusive environment for veterans and military families through education, philanthropy, and currently has close to 5,000 members globally. There's also an external program called Salesforce Military, which provides free enablement and recognised qualifications in the Salesforce ecosystem that can lead to employment in the industry post-service. This offer is open to serving personnel and their partners, as well as veterans. We have our second ever Australian guest, so mega excited, and that is Heston Russell, who is the leader of the Australian Values Party, a former commando with the Australian um, Army, or Australian Special Forces, I should say, really, correct myself there, and uh, the founder of an armed forces charity in Australia too. Heston, mate, it's great to sit down with you. Um, how are you? G'day, Johnny. Good, and thanks for having me on. I won't take offence that I'm the second Aussie, but I get it. The other <laughs> one's a, a sitting parliamentary member, so I get that completely. No, it's really good to have our allies from across the whole Five Eyes community, um, and particularly yourself, because I've been watching what you've been doing. It's been really fascinating about how you're looking to change our politics, um, particularly in Australia. Um, but I do believe, is this your first ever UK po- podcast? It is. It's my first, uh, my first royal podcast, as it might be. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's with me. That's all I could say. Um, so, <laughs> no, great to have you on, mate. And um, just, and also, I'm keen to know: Have you actually been to the UK before? Mate, I have. I've been to, I've been to Wales, Manchester, and London, all within a 48 hour period. And that's a bit of a, bit of a funny story. I uh, got back from my last deployment to Iraq, 2000 from Iraq 2017 and actually moved myself to LA to be with my then partner. And as you may recall, there was the bombing at the Ariana Grande concert oh. and a commando buddy of mine actually ran a sort of high-end security company over there. And uh, next thing I knew it, because I had served an experience within our counterterrorism organization here in Australia, I found myself as the head of security for the Black Eyed Peas who were playing the opening ceremony for the UEFA grand final in Wales, which was uh, Real Madrid versus Juventus, of which I didn't even know how to pronounce yeah, Juventus. Did and then uh, when we were there, the uh, memorial concert for Ariana Grande um, occurred in Manchester the, the following day. Um, that was it, unfortunately. As you would imagine, most of my time has been spent either down under or uh, up in the Middle East. I haven't really got to visit the uh, the motherland or the, the majesty herself, but I, I plan on doing that later this month, as we were saying before. Awesome. Well, no, you're very welcome. But yeah, you spent a lot of time overseas on operations. Um, and as mentioned in the introduction, served at the very highest levels. 
But what what on earth? Why on earth did you join the military in the first place? I ask all my guests this because everyone's got different yeah. reasons. But I'll be really interested to know why you actually joined the military. Now, a really good question. Look, I'm a fifth generation army veteran here. Um, my um, great great grandfather World War One, great grandfather World War Two, grandfather whose pictures just there. He was you know on the hook in Korea and also served in Vietnam. And my father served Afghanistan, Iraq as well. And I think I was always brought up around that sort of military household and more so the people I was brought up around growing up as a kid were aspirational people you know they were um, masculine men they were accomplished people they were really you know family values type environments and um, you know I was a fat unpopular kid at high school and so much of what I wanted to be um, and grow into was a lot of which I grew up around as a kid and it was that um, journey and that exploration and that purpose that I, I needed and Absolutely loved it, and I ended up doing sixteen years in there. That's phenomenal. That your 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 own dad served in Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Yeah, it was actually quite funny. My my father served twenty years in our army and did a training deployment overseas and never saw combat. It was in that sort of peace period that we had after Vietnam. Uh, it got out and then got back in when I was just completing um, grade eleven, grade twelve. And before I had my first deployment to Afghanistan, he had managed to deploy to Afghanistan twice and Iraq twice. He was with the the first push as a ground liaison officer when we went in there to, you know, get rid of Saddam. And it was just fascinating for me seeing, you know, what he achieved in a few years as opposed to a 20-year career. And just great insights as well, as I'm sure you would appreciate from that and many veterans not feeling accomplished and then getting to see that uh, with operational service. That's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, there's definitely kind of two two generations um, experience in this in this country too. Sort of the Northern yeah. Ireland generation, which I just about am part of, and then we have this, you know, the the Balkans conflict, Kosovo, yeah. Bosnia, and then we have the Iraq Afghan. And some people struggle all three of those periods. Um, very few, uh, but some do. But there, yeah, there are clear distinctions between two. And I just think it's absolutely phenomenal that your dad and you're able to kind of get some insight from him before your own deployments, of which there are many. And one of those deployments as well include East Timor. Not many people in the UK will be aware of Australia's uh, contribution uh, to those struggles in East Timor. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and what that was like for your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what was it? Oh, 1999, I think is when we first went in. Uh, basically, what occurred was the um, region of East Timor uh, voted for and got their independence from Indonesia. But unfortunately, Indonesia tried to maintain them by force. And there was a humanitarian crisis of which Australia led a um, United Nations push uh, into um, basically what was peacemaking and then became peacekeeping. And I deployed actually my second year out of the college, uh, 2007, 2008 to East Timor in a peacekeeping role, uh, which was brilliant. You know, I was a 21-year-old platoon commander and I was fortunate to have studied three years worth of um, Bahasa Indonesia at the military academy um, and got to really, I still say it was probably one of the best uh, experiences that set up my military career because it was walking around with a slung weapon, but it all came down to the human terrain, hearts and minds, you know, we were there for seven months and it really was that emotional intelligence development that set me up for all of that subsequent combat experience that I was to have. I'll say exactly the same about Northern Ireland, funny enough, is that because it was that human terrain level interacting with the people, albeit they were us, you know, they were UK subjects. So people that looked sounded like us, albeit in you know, Northern Irish accents, but certainly as an 18 year old, that's where I have my apprenticeship on the ground, learning that emotional intelligence, being able to diffuse situations by being an effective communicator, not necessarily with force. Uh, and there were some pretty you know, difficult situations with public disorder on the streets of Belfast, etc. And I was there for the Drum Cree um, riot season as well that summer of my deployment. So, I, and I think I'm um, fast forward over a decade later to Afghanistan and albeit I did speak Pashto um, and I was able to converse, obviously not as effectively in my own tongue, but that, that apprenticeship of Northern Ireland, I think really set me up for perhaps more difficult situations in Afghanistan. So it's really interesting to, to hear your experience being the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even relate this to business, the, the number one cause of all problems or complex issues are people. And the more you understand people, the better off you are. 
My third deployment in Afghanistan in 2012 was as a commando platoon commander, 40 guys in my platoon. We did 67 missions, mainly helicopter assault force missions, killed 117 insurgents, captured so many more. I didn't have to deal with layers of complexity. I mean, I had a partner force and all of this, but that was, you know, tactics and operational strategy and asset integration and, you know, mission design. Um, whereas in East Timor, it's really coming down to you, you're not imposing your will on others. You require them and buy with and through, as we say, the great catch cries of, you know, that sort of soft power and that human terrain tactics. And, you know, you can really decentralize and have people achieve so much more than you can achieve by military force alone. And it's just, a, a, you know, appreciating that people are people appealing to humanity and you know, encompassing um, what can go along with that opportunity as well as threats. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a far more complex operation, dare I say it, uh, particularly, you know, even politically and strategically often in East Timor. Um, much more permissive for media and things like that to be able to report on you than it was the sort of sterile combat scenario that was uh, Afghanistan or that combat deployment for me anyway. And all those human skills that you just mentioned, of course, transferable not only to business, but into politics. And we'll come on to that later on about your journey as a veteran in politics and hence sure. the name of the show while you're here. Um, be really interested in going back to one of those deployments as well to Afghanistan. Um, I mean, many of our UK listeners will be fully aware of our own experience with witch hunts on British troops on operations, particularly in Iraq. Um, our friend uh, Brian Wood, MC, um, experienced this alongside my old regiment, Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment um, in Iraq with witch hunts um, and ambulance chasing lawyers, essentially. And and they that was that's all come out through a lot of pain, but through to the High Court. And that experience has been really quite bruising. Um, but can you tell us about your own experience, the Australian experience and perhaps the, the actions of November platoon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look. For those listening, we've actually just set up a, a, a blog page on my website, hestonrussell.com slash ABC, where you can actually go and read this from day dot. But to simplify, on the 21st of October 2020, which was the eight-year anniversary of the death of one of my guys, Corporal Scott Smith, who was killed by an IED on that deployment to Afghanistan, our ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, published a story that basically talked about a US Marine Huey um, crew chief saying that on a night mission into Afghanistan, flying a couple of thousand feet above the ground in fire support, uh, he heard a pop on the radio, uh, which meant that we had executed a prisoner because we had seven and only six could fit on the Huey. Um, I immediately started speaking out about that and over the last two years have just taken them to task, um, including forcing them to submit a freedom of information request to our Department of Defence of which the dates that they requested um, gave away that my platoon wasn't even in Afghan conducting operations at that time. And uh, as I don't know when this is going to go to air, mate, but I'm literally in the final process of commencing defamation action against them after nearly two years, because the battle has been that you can never, you, can, you can't take them for defamation on behalf of the platoon because the Department of Defense owns that. And unfortunately, our Department of Defense has taken a, a backwards position on these things, hasn't led into them. Um, we've also had a number of other inquiries underway, which have sort of muddied the waters there a bit. But uh, during the conduct of setting up the political party last year, the ABC doubled down on their stories and decided to name me personally and publicly um, in relation to being that platoon commander. So now I'm allowed to take them to task personally. But this is the whole piece, and this has been a huge part of my inroads into deciding to do politics in the simple fact that um, myself and my guys have to unmask ourselves from our protected identity status at a time when Afghanistan has fallen. And we, like yourself, mate, know the very real-world threats that are actually out there outside of the comfort of keyboard warriors um, and everything else, who all others who commentate in the media as opposed to contributing and for people to be able to make accusations about, you know, counterinsurgency special forces operations um, that require us to step forward to defend ourselves publicly and expose ourselves and our families to that risk while there haven't actually been charges laid in court, let alone investigations completed. That's been my whole um, penchant towards sort of actively campaigning to go, hey, look, I'm all for freedom of speech. I'm all for transparency and accountability. 
but there are unique circumstances such as combat operations, let alone special forces combat operations, that there needs to be an extra layer of protection and support for our veterans before you decide to, you know, as I say, we want to stand in the stand in the open square and be able to have this debate. That's great. But for us to stand in the square and have that debate, um, we open ourselves up to a lifetime of potential targeting and threats and everything else in between. Um, so that's been a large sort of push and focus for me personally and professionally. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing Scott's name um, because it's important we remember those fallen. And I like to use this podcast as every opportunity when we're talking about those that have passed. Um, we've mentioned me- many names over the, the seasons of this podcast of those that have fallen. So it's important that we remember them. And secondly, thank you for you know staying the course um, for this and putting your head above the parapet because that can't have been easy in many ways. Uh, both. Uh- it must it's be been good. interesting. Mate. If people are people listen to your podcast, if they Google Heston Russell and you see any stories by uh, the ABC or left wing media, please uh, put that in relation to literally the last two years have been attracting every flick of um, of dirt and dangleberry they can attach uh, to try and muddy the waters. But um, and I tell you what, mate, it's been <laughs> you know you yourself. We have we have intelligence departments. You know we have intelligence teams. And when I like to talk to the guys and girls transitioning out, talking about, you know, marketing and PR and social media, think of it like an intelligence um, organization, but it's not, you know, there's a, there's agenda and there's intelligence that's put together to match that. Um, It's been a real eye-opening ordeal, appreciating that it's not about authentic um, firsthand information. It's about, you know, what you can achieve out of that, to be honest. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's driven by that P word, um, purpose. And yeah, you've already absolutely. mentioned it. Um, but what does what does purpose actually mean to you, and how's it guided guided your life decisions? Yeah, so purpose for me, I talk about this a lot. Um, purpose, identity, and community, particularly in my um, advocacy for veterans' mental health and suicide, the crisis we're having here in Australia, and I sort of suffered a bit myself. Purpose for me in the context of now appreciating transitioning our defense is what I actually call proactive resilience. You know, myself as a commander, purpose provided me with two extra layers of resilience that were proactive. They were the mission and they were my team. And before anything ever hit me, you know, mentally or emotionally or physically, it always sort of stopped out those out of those um, proactive layers of resilience because that was where my focus was and that was where my intrinsic motivation was pushing and guiding me. Um, and these days, you know, a lot of people in the veteran community struggle with purpose and a lot of people in politics struggle struggle with what is actually the purpose beyond your own personal or party um, extrinsic motivations, those which provide that more immediate gratification. And for me, that purpose comes back down to deriving your own individual values. You know, they have to be the bedrock of that moral compass that guides us. And, you know, in the military context, purpose one up and two up. What is that reason why we are doing what we're doing that provides you with that azimuth check when there is the potential fork in the road? Um, you'll hear me talk about and speak on purpose until the cows come home, mate. You know, the reason why and asking that question, why are you doing that as opposed to why do you want to do that? Is, is Can purpose be enough though? Like particularly the difficult times that you faced, you must yeah. sometimes, your own human, think, why am I carrying on with this? Why don't you just do something else? Why don't you just leave it? Um, but can purpose be enough to keep you going and drive through those difficult times? No, absolutely not. I think purpose will end and purpose does end. Um, be that, you know, in the individual campaign you're doing, the people, the party, um, relationships, everything else in between. What I've realized is community is that vital part that's needed. You know, I've never done anything in my life that I didn't have some form of support network, which I just name community these days. Um, and again, every single operation I've ever conducted was achieved through the force multiplication of other people coming together, united in purpose and forming that community. And that community is that you know safety net that catches you when purpose ends, when you struggle individually with any part of your identity or any other roadblock that's put in your way. And that community is that element that also provides you with purpose and purpose that is inspiring, especially in the purpose of service that brings you outside of yourself and re-engages those proactive layers of resilience. Yeah, it's quite a special thing to be part of, isn't it? It's quite unique being part of that purpose and, and getting people from all different backgrounds behind that mission, that common purpose. Um, yeah. I think the only place, and I'm going to mention it, sorry, 
CrossFit um, is uh, where, where I've kind of replicated that sense of a unifying purpose, no matter what backgrounds, abilities people come from. But when you're in a workout together, there's the, there is a sense of purpose joint, even though you're individually working hard. Um, I, I can't explain it. It's um, um, some of my friends going to laugh at me when they hear this. Me talking about, oh god, he's talking about CrossFit again. Oh, sorry. Um, we say we call it esprit de corps, mateship. You know, it's the same as when I played rugby. It's and particularly in the context of veterans and CrossFit or whatever else, where there's that physical buy-in to that purpose. It comes down to your performance and your actions there and then, especially in a world where people are constantly able to be inauthentic and let their words do the talking, but not be able to follow through and be accountable in actions. That's where particularly us within the veteran community and those who have lived the pinnacle of appreciating true authenticity and true accountability, it comes from a physical buy-in where you can't hide behind a computer or a keyboard. Yeah, that physical bit. That's really interesting. That's probably the differentiator. Um, I think, yeah, I think the penny's dropped for me. And the other thing alongside purpose is values. So yeah. when we talk about our values in the British Army, the values and standards, one of the values we talk about, when we talk about the value of courage, we talk about physical courage, but we talk about the moral courage as well, doing the right thing on a difficult day. And that's really important to me. because It's probably one of the, the most, that and integrity, probably two really important values that I hold dearly. But I mean, you've built your own brand around values. Yeah, I'm going to enjoy this conversation already. I love it. <laughs> well, we'll see, shall we? But I mean, you've yeah. built your whole brand is around this V word values and you've even formed a political party, the Australian values party. Now what's really interesting interests me about this is that how do you navigate the, that guiding principle when it faces the real politique of setting out policy um, and ideology to actually deliver change to then sell to an electorate again, as I said earlier on is purpose enough are values enough and how do you really kind of focus in on a political offer as you have done to the electorate? Are values enough? Oh, so many layers here. You know, first and foremost, love what you're saying about, you know, physical moral moral courage. Um, in particular for me, my entire military career primarily required physical courage. And the biggest thing I realized in society today, it's actually the moral courage that is required and in droves. And that's what we need is, you know warriors of moral courage and integrity 100% mate I, I badger on all day about the lack of accountability in our country at the moment and I had this epiphany the other day the only reason why we have to you know the only reason why we should need accountability is because people don't have their own integrity to keep themselves accountable and, and follow through with what they say follow through what they do with what they say um, so values i Arrived at this point over the last two years dealing with everything from, uh, you know, combating our own taxpayer-funded broadcasting corporation over allegations that were harming myself and my guys uh, through to campaigning for and winning the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide that's underway here uh, in Australia. And I literally campaigned by knocking on door-to-door in our parliament with a little motion that I wrote on a piece of paper, uh, and it got passed unanimously through the Senate and the lower house. and. I got approached by eight different political parties here, the big ones and the little ones, who all asked me to run for them. And I went and did a couple of interviews with some of their people, and I started to see that a lot of the the party politique, as you say, or the party elite, are not politicians themselves. It's backdoor boardrooms, and it's, you know, we want you to push this point and be this part of our brand and do this. And it didn't sit with my personal values. It didn't sit with authenticity. It didn't sit with integrity. And uh, I started to have a look at, all the different locations. Australia is going through an identity crisis. You know, we have left wing versus right wing, have all sorts of um, virtue signaling going on and not a lot of substance going on. And my issue is we're performing at a mediocrity level as opposed to the high performance level we should be. And I actually had to think about how you fix that problem and not just fix it once, but fix it systemically. And my last job within the military was running and reforming our commando selection course. And as many of your listeners will know, the selection course is the gateway through which we're selecting people who are likely to then be successful on the 10 or 12 months reinforcement cycle to get their beret at the end of it. And we select people on their commando attributes, their values. We are selecting the right people that we can then train to achieve anything. And we do that by tearing them back physically mentally to expose their emotional resilience, their intrinsic motivations. 
And that comes from a baseline level of values that you can then build on any policy or any other skills and qualifications on top of that. And I actually Googled and I said, what are the Australian values? And I found that there is actually an Australian value statement that every single person coming into Australia has to sign and agree to, to become a citizen or to achieve a visa. You know, and the first one was respect for the freedom of dignity of the individual, commitment to the rule of law, equality of opportunity, regardless of race, sex, gender, and all these other things. And I read this value statement and it read brilliantly. And then I looked around and I just went, we are the furthest from this. We are so, we're such hypocrites at the political level. Um, and I was in my own echo chamber of so many other veterans and first responders who were having these same epiphanies. And everyone I took this value statement to um, was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. So I decided to literally jump on social media and say, hey, you know, you need to get 1,500 members to form a political party. And we got 2,000 members within two weeks. And it all came from, regardless of the policy, as long as we assess it against these Australian values, and that is how we justify our decision on a policy back to people, that is the method through which we can actually achieve genuine centric politics focused on people, not focused on party preferences. Now, I'll say to you here and now, Johnny, where I failed in my assessment was not realizing that politics and the conduct of politics and how authentic and pure that sounds and would be in practice is irrelevant compared to an election period. And the election periods, in particular in a country where voting is compulsory, comes down to a marketing exercise through which you need to hook and snag people on key policies and key catchwords and key emotions in order to be voted in. Uh, and while we have this absolutely aspirational um, image and plan for Australian politics, it doesn't mean anything if you're not elected. And the Australian Values Party, just in name alone, was immediately perceived by many and manipulated by many in the media to grab that word values and have it associated with religion, have it associated with racism. You know, I'm actually an openly gay male, but I don't enjoy having to profess my sexuality at all because, again, it comes down to values and performance and purpose. And, you know, to have, you know, people saying that I was a, a religious bigot only to then turn around and realize I was gay, only then to turn around and realize I, you know, deployed Afghanistan four times. Watching these people struggle with these labels and what they thought they were meant to um, react to um, conventionally and conservatively was incredible. And um, we might get onto it later, but we've done a whole three-month review after action review of that political campaign. Um doing what I do best, doing some tactics, doing some operational design. And we've actually launched a state party taking on the Victorian state election down here in Australia. And I've kept the acronym AVP, but it's called the Angry Victorians Party. <laughs> and uh, within two weeks, we've had more media jump onto it, given the name alone, um, than we paid you know, nearly a million dollars for in the federal election by realising that the election is separate to politics. And it's the same structure behind it. But 1% of the population goes to your website and reads your policies and the rest, particularly in the world of social media and you know headlines and what's next, what's next, what next, you've got 30 seconds um, to get that inroads and the best you can um, dig in your hooks when you've got that attention, um, the better you're going to be on election day. Well, I, I saw your, your marketing stuff in the election. I thought it was pretty good. I loved your videos. I, I, I was showing people. I was like, what do you think of that? Hey, the amount of people who have, since the election, come and seen our stuff and gone, oh, my goodness, like, you guys are amazing. I just never heard about you. You know, and that's because the media here and everything else, it's the way in which politics is designed here in Australia. It's red team versus blue team. It's, you know, left wing versus right wing. And even though we don't elect, you know, our own presidents or the prime minister elected by the party, the way in which that marketing campaign is run is it's the two big parties, they only get the airtime um, and everything else has to be a grassroots ground up campaign. And we tried to lead into an election being registered in January with the election in um, May, June. But hey, first time around. No plenty of contact, contact with the enemy, is it? Um, well, fringe, fringe. Play better. <laughs> It can happen, and we've seen that in uh, in our own country here in the UK with um, Brexit as a key issue that actually transcended party political divides. It wasn't a party political issue at all; uh, it was an it was an issue issue. And and then we saw a party 
a political party more from UKIP, United Kingdom Independence Party, into the Brexit Party. And there's been about, I don't know, four or five different versions of that. But being electorally successful, including in local government um, campaigns, I remember working for the blue team, fighting county council elections. So, you know, smaller, but still strategic local authorities and UKIP candidates. Bear in mind, it's a local election, nothing to do with Europe. They were performing really well because people were using it as an emotional driver in order to put their, you know, pin firmly on that donkey that they were voting for. So it it can, it can happen. Um, But then we've seen that now retreat to polarization of politics here in the uk the main so that's the similarity of australia but the difference being is obviously we don't have compulsory voting um watch this space maybe that will happen in the future um but um you did mention that you'd been courted by i don't know a half a dozen or so other political parties as well and the interesting thing for me is that why have you chosen to have a kind of disru- political disruptor as opposed to perhaps adopting a Trojan horse strategy of going within, you know, dropping the hatch and out jumps Heston Russell and his mates uh, to then disrupt the parties from within. Why have you chosen that option compared to the other one? Yeah, look, really great question, Johnny. And uh, that was a product of the last 18 months of my own success and the success of my team, you know, particularly We had the chief of the defence force and the prime minister in our country stand up and say that they were going to take away the meritorious unit citations from all 3,000 special forces personnel when they released this Burton inquiry into special forces. And within two days, I set up a social media brand I called Voice of a Veteran, and we had 90,000 Australians sign a petition to not do that because that included 20 um, dead special forces veterans who were going to have those taken away from their family. And I had more national media than I've ever had um, immediately and was sort of thrust into the spotlight, which resulted in a few months later in the government backpedaling and saying that they would not do that. Then I carried that momentum through and literally went door to door down in Canberra and within a month achieved a royal commission with the help of others. But I was literally the person walking a piece of paper and having a human conversation with the member of parliament or with the senator and got them on the spot um, to support, including two members of the current um, you know, blue team uh, who were going to cross the floor and be the change um, in uh, achieving that. So I you know, literally never met failure or never met a roadblock. And all of a sudden, particularly in walking door to door down in uh, our parliament house, I got to see that so many of the politicians we have in there are professional politicians and didn't you know, didn't survive the first sentence of contact with me because they relied on their staff members. They relied on this. They're great with media. They're great with prepared statements, but they fail as problem solvers and as people. And I was like, I can build a team and crush these people, um, essentially. And I'm being very candid with you. Um, I had so many ex-veterans, first responders, doctors, nurses, small business owners, you know, people who are those who've lived the human terrain, who've done, you know, their peacekeeping operations out there, not just espousing policies in press conferences. But what I underestimated was the firepower and the finances that these big parties have to just literally block you out in the media, which you require for the election periods, and particularly being a centrist party, as opposed to, you know, trying to literally, our role of the infantry is to seize and hold ground. And I say we're trying to seize and hold the middle ground that's been lost in these polarizing conversations. If you stand in the middle of the road, um, you actually cop traffic from both sides or you miss traffic from both sides. And, you know, you're right. I should have made more friends going into it, but that's a lesson learned. And luckily I learned that lesson at 36 years old, but what we did learn and did achieve in that federal election, mate, was so much groundswell support, so many volunteers, so many candidates from particularly other minor parties, but some major parties have now joined us behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, we have a glide path leading up to the next election. And also appreciating what you said, we had a bunch of independents here in Australia elected on you know, single party issues like climate and environment. And Australia, who is suffering from an identity crisis, you guys in the UK will see some conversations about this Indigenous voice to parliament and all of this going on. The next, for me, it's a byproduct of the identity crisis we're suffering. And sadly, uh, when our monarch, um, our shared queen, passes um, in the 
you know, near future. Hopefully she lives a long and, and happy life, but we all know that is coming to an end. I believe that that is going to be a, um, a time for us to have that question of what is the future of Australia. And that doesn't mean be a republic. I think it means have that conversation, bring a plan to the people, and at least have the people vote yes or no. And either way, invest in the future of our identity. Um, and I'm giving away all my political secrets for you here and now. <laughs> but uh, that's what I think we need to do and carry into our next federal election. Um, and that will be my plan. Because, mate, I'm happy to talk about it openly. It comes down to purpose because my country here in Australia, we are not performing anywhere near we could be. We are pulling ourselves apart over culture wars while we are identified as the plan B or the Mars escape plan for the big China countries of this world, sitting on all of our resources and 26 million people to defend it with, you know, 50,000 people in our defense force. Um, we have some big real world issues, but it comes from needing to sort out the culture, sort out our agreed values, sort out our identity here in our country. Otherwise, we're individual tribes fighting in all different directions. Do you know what? Listening to all that, I could literally just dub over with a British accent as you're talking and people would be thinking about you talking about this country. There are oh, some- really? Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, and you've mentioned the C word, China. Um, if we were just to past. <laughs> That cast from China and actually people can get some perspective about the real problems facing our country rather than these, you know, kind of culture wars that are going on and actually thinking a little bit more strategically and the impact on what that has on our day-to-day living. Obviously, Russia all of a sudden, people have woken up to, particularly here in Europe, oh, because it's close to us now. Um, yeah, it is. And they've just kind of woken up through the Ukraine crisis. Um, but honestly, there are so many synergies. Um, and it's been really interesting listening to you talk because what I'm hearing there is some real strong leadership. And on leadership, you haven't spoken about your military leadership because people might assume, knowing, seeing your CV, that a podcast like this would be talking about examples of your military leadership, of which I'm sure there are many, some of which you can't talk about. But what you've given here is how you've transferred that leadership experience you know, through that initiation of the military experience and into civilian life. Uh, and through real examples, how you've applied that to try and change the world. And I've heard you say in the past that you're perhaps a better leader now that you are truly yourself compared to when you were in the military. Um, how, you know, as, as you were a high performing operator in the military. So I'm really interested to hear why you think you're a better leader now compared to that, you know, badass special forces operator um, in the commandos. So why yeah. is, would you say that? Good questions. Yeah, I tell people I used to be cool. Um, you know, I've I've literally it's a 10-year anniversary since my platoon deployed on that um big trip to Afghanistan. And each Friday I actually release a YouTube episode um of some of our time over there. And I'm just yeah. getting into some of the good combat stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm following and, uh, that. Those hel- the helmet cam stuff. Yeah, it's um I, I wish I had all the stuff. You could imagine they took all the good stuff away. But uh During that whole time in my military career, especially my special forces career, I lived, my entire purpose was my career and I never had a a romantic relationship. I never had anything in my life that was potentially a distraction. And, you know, people will think, you know, or have pity on that. I didn't need it. I loved what I did. I loved being responsible for my team. I loved the purpose. I loved the community. It was everything. And it is inspiration that I still miss today. But what we do so well is we, you know, compartmentalize emotions. Um, you know, I definitely felt the loss of Scott. I definitely felt the losses of other people. Um, and, you know, there were times of tragedy. But if anything, they provided so much more inspiration for the purpose. And I was never left alone in my own emotions, in my own identity outside of that role, that position, that purpose. And it was only once transitioning from the military. Uh, like I said, I'm. I'm gay, but I never, ever, ever wanted my performance to be measured on anything that I didn't earn or anything that wasn't, as we say, as a part of our daily renewable contract that came down to you proving um, you deserve things through earning them. Uh, So I never dealt with uh, my sexuality. I never dealt with all of these labels that society and the media, again, if you Google me, will constantly try and put on me and others in order to try and define us and help others understand us as opposed to um sorry any and limit ourselves by what we think people can and and should be able to um consume or understand 
And it's only here and now appreciating that, you know, you're, you're never going to have everyone like you. You're never going to have everyone agree with you, but you just need to be able to justify why you're doing what you're doing. And also have that conversation with yourself and others first, identifying the values, identifying the purpose and forging ahead for the right reasons. You know, I now fully appreciate and understand who I am um, and I no longer wear my body armor, but my resilience is back coming from that, um, you know, what does Maslow call it? That self-actualization that is, you know, encouraged by that purpose and magnified by that purpose. but. You know, you truly got a handle on who you are and what you need to do. And I guess that body armor is not as heavy now, right? Mate, I tell you what, though, the body still feels it. (laughs) No, you're right. And, you know, physical injuries are replaced by sort of mental health and emotional um, trials and injuries. And it's been, you know, we talked about it before. Moral courage is so much harder than physical courage. And that's been that part I really had to learn. Like, I can weighed into physical courage left, right, and center, but it has been that moral courage getting out there and, you know, having to tell people that I'm gay and having conversations to break people away from entitlement and bring them back to responsibility and, you know, even wage war against members of my own gay community because they're being activists as opposed to being responsible and helping bring people together. You know, that's not popular. That doesn't get me invited to Mardi Gras parades. That gets me, you know, banned from the Rainbow Brigade, but it's what is needed for the greater good. While at the same time, I'm getting attacked by the Christian lobby during the election um, who have no idea about my military experience and that I've been willing to fight for their bigotry overseas. Like, unfortunately, (laughs) it's an interesting kettle of fish, but that's the whole thing, mate. Like, I now know why I'm doing what I'm doing, and it's not a personal crusade. You kind of sit there going, well, if I can't do this with all of the training and experience that the Australian taxpayer has paid for and that my family has invested, like who else is going to? And will I be able to live with myself if I don't put all of that into action for the greater good? And also making sure I have people who can keep me accountable and keep me in check and make sure I don't get too big for my own boots. Who is that? Who keeps you in check? My mum and my sister are amazing. My friend Sam is amazing. My dad is the ultimate pessimist who will tell me everything won't work. Well, to be honest, it's really been reinvesting in my family and also sort of cutting through a lot of the people who like to be around you for a reason or for a transaction and finding those people who are willing to be around you and give, you know, that fearless feedback. Um, And a lot of those have been my old guys from the platoon, mate, and it's been reconnecting with a lot of them um, who prefer to be hidden in the background um, and call your bullshit like they would call bullshit during our planning um, phases and stages um, and who know the real world outcomes of, you know, failed planning and of ego and all of the rest. I love how when I asked you about who, how you seamlessly transitioned from talking about your blood family into your military family without it even being obvious, because I think those of us that have had a good family upbringing, I certainly come from a really good family. There were four of us kids as well, really tight. Um, and I go back to those family working class roots values that I hold dear um, and seeing the example of my parents and the adversity that they overcame um, and then add to that military values and the military family. I think it's a superpower. Um, you know, some in the military community and you would have led those people who came from broken homes and difficult family backgrounds that didn't necessarily that, that, that were it replaced the family in in yeah. some sense, the military. Um, so it's yeah. definitely not downplaying the role that the military can do to supplement the family. But I just think it, how you merge the two there is a superpower. Um, and it comes back to those values that you mentioned. And um, the other well, thing, family by choice, mate, you know, some people have terrible families and terrible upbringings and you can't choose your family, but you can choose who you want to be in your family afterwards. That's for sure. Yeah, and there's some great families as well, um, whether that's the the unit you choose in the military um, and hearing you talk about what we call the commando spirit with our commandos here, that kind of family values um, or the you know different cultures within the three armed services that we have here in the UK, you can definitely choose that family. Um, but in, in every family, you have uh, men, women, um, and uh, we, I've heard you use the term alphabetical male. Um, oh, yeah. 
so I'm really interested because about the future of men and our role. So I think we're kind of struggling a little bit as men uh, about our place. I mean, becoming a father myself, um, I've kind of struggled a little bit at times with that. And where do I get guidance and support? My role models, obviously my own dad, other military yeah. dads I've looked to. Um, and we're kind of struggling a little bit as men, um, particularly around the mental health side of it. Um, what does the future look like for men? Um, particularly our generation, the Iraq Afghan generation of veterans, what does it look like for us? Oh, good question, mate. I mean, that alphabetical male part comes from, you know, in in the commandos and special forces, everyone has their own call sign. And as the platoon commander, as the commander, you're always the call sign alpha. So I was November November platoon and I was the platoon commander. So my call sign was November alpha. And you're always taught since day one on the selection course, you know, you need to be the alpha male, you need to be in charge. And the simple fact of real combat leadership um, and also outside leadership requiring moral courage is, no, your job is to um, apply leadership, which is motivating people through inspiration to achieve purpose that they might not have normally been able to achieve individually. And that requires you to lead from the front, lead from the back, lead from the side, lead from wherever is required. And you are always going to meet someone who is going to be a bigger, quote, alpha male than you in some form of stage of your life. And your job is to still motivate that person to unite on purpose, not clash on personalities. And authenticity and vulnerability are those two key words that enable me to be a better leader these days. Authenticity and appreciating what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, and um, that the authentic purpose of leadership is to bring people together with purpose, not clash and prove your own personality or personal um, preferences. Uh, and then that vulnerability piece, you know, to also acknowledge that you're going to need help at some stage. You can't always lead from the front because, um, you know, you're going to lead people into an ambush or lead people into disaster. And I think that the future for the, for the male and the masculine energy in all these conversations is we have to push past these inferiority complexes and, and templates and um, comparisons. Toxic comparison is actually what's the issue with our demographic, not this toxic masculinity. It's where we're comparing ourselves to others with competitiveness or comparing ourselves to what we used to be like I did for so long when I transitioned from my career and appreciate it's about who you are here and now today, not what you were or what you could be in the future. It's what you can achieve in the future and bringing people together with purpose is the better way to achieve that. Um, I would love to get into, I have a whole sort of psychological piece to this, you know, since we're, there's very rarely a time where as men, we are required to be truly vulnerable. You know, we're always able to, a lot of us becoming men comes down to sexual prowess, size of endowment, all these sorts of things. Whereas, you know, women, when they become uh, women, they go through a physical change that requires them to be vulnerable and be more responsible for their bodies. Whereas most men, always when they become men, it, they enter into a, a culture and a society that more so pushes entitlement. Now you're a man, you can do this, you can do that, as opposed to responsibility. And for me, the current culture war battle that I'm having, regardless of the sexuality or demographic or anything, is getting people to take off the lenses of entitlement that are constantly being pushed onto people, you deserve this, you deserve that, and putting on lenses of responsibility saying, hey, this is what you now carry forward as your responsibility. You are a man, therefore this is what you're responsible for. And I think whatever the future is for whatever uh, men, particularly those bringing it back to your questions about Afghan veterans and Iraq veterans, our countries and our societies require us, need us, to remember everything that we learned in our experiences during service and carry them forward in a big bag full of responsibility to bring that perspective into today's society because probably the same there, mate, but the most dangerous thing to Australian society at the moment is our isolation down here on our rich little island where people are able to have and tear each other apart over these arguments to do with pronouns and everything else in between because we're not facing the real world threats and risks and realities that we have seen on operations that we've seen others have to fight for their own survival while we mess around with the things that help us to thrive. And it's our requirement to figure out how to best inject that perspective responsibly into our society, within to our communities, to make sure that it's not lost, 
to make sure that we don't force it onto people and therefore further widen the gap, the polarizing gap and divide that that creates and to trickle feed and first and foremost, the most true and powerful, authentic version of leadership, just lead by example in how we do what we do. Um, The best men, the best leaders we need are those who've had that operational experience and adapted to their new environment and lead by example by showing that moral courage um, that was forged through the physical courage they probably had to show in service. Wow, that's powerful. I think, um, Heston, um, we're going to close out there, but the thing that I'd really like to put point out is that that responsibility you mentioned, I, I think is a big one. Our generation of, we're seeing here that our Falklands War veterans now in their 60s, 70s, we are losing, sadly, the Korean War and Second World War veterans. Who's next, right? That's you yeah. and me, right? I'm with you. We, it's, our, it's our turn. We've got to pick up the mantle and take that responsibility. Uh, men, women, all of us from that generation. And uh, I have to say, I've really enjoyed today's chat, mate. It's been really Likewise. good. And uh, We're meant to talk more on politics, mate, but I think it's all... <laughs> All politics, it's all right? to an end, isn't it? It's all, but as long as you bring it all back to people and then appreciate what that purpose is, like you said. And we just need to have more of these conversations, mate. I know what it's like over there, but here you mentioned the word politics and people run for the hills, but we just need to appreciate that it's actually you talking about what's going on around you and forming an opinion and thinking about how you can plan to put that into action. This is politics. It is, isn't it? Has some Russell. New age politics, mate. Thank you, Johnny. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you. Salesforce is actively pursuing through its friends within the MOD and the Veterans Advisory and Pension Committees to make veteran data obtainable in a compliant way to the Office of Veterans Affairs. This will have a significant impact in understanding the needs of the veteran community nationally, but also act as a conduit to better enable the VAPCs and local government to understand their veteran communities to help those most in need. Salesforce can bring this vision to light, allowing all veterans to stand up and serve again. And we're enormously grateful for their support in helping us produce this podcast.